On a hill too far away, 15 Protestant truths about the death of God the Son. This is part 11, and the title is, Jesus died on the cross to define authentic marriage and infuse it with its deepest spiritual power. Here's the text. I read. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, and you'll see the reason for... uh, Picking that starting point in just a second. Though have your Bibles open at Ephesians 5 because the argument I want to make needs a bit of the context of the surrounding passage. 5.22. There aren't less politically correct words in the English language than these. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, you die for your wives. Gave himself up for her. That's the cross, right? We're talking about the cross in this series of messages, the atonement. When did Christ give himself up for the church? When he died on the cross, correct? It doesn't take rocket science to, to see that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, you recognize this quote, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. And I am saying that it refers to not husband and wife. He's just quoted these words from Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother, that's the earthly relationship, hold fast to his wife, that's the physical woman, the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, now, what I'm talking about here is Christ and the church. You go, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Paul, you're, you're talking about a husband and a wife. I saw the words. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. Genesis marriage of Adam and Eve, Paul says, this is talking about Christ and his church. Strange. However, let each one of you 
talking to the husbands, love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. I can still remember years ago, years ago, um, the day I finally decided we needed to rewrite the marriage ceremony that was used for church weddings at Cedarview. Um, we've kind of, like I said, I'm not sure we hold to that as rigidly maybe as we used to or maybe as we should. But I was experiencing this growing uh, frustration and amazement with the fact that couples would sit in my office, husbands and wives, and as you'd talk about marriage and as you'd talk about the wedding, in very guarded words, but unmistakably, over and over and over and over again, these are men and women who are raised in this church, understand what I'm talking about, who, I think, love God's word, and love Jesus, and say he's Lord of their lives, and want to enter into marriage that's pleasing and honoring to the Lord, and build a Christian home and a Christian family, and the lengths to which they would go to dodge having these words read at their weddings. By far, I said this morning, this is the only really the only extensive New Testament passage talking about the responsibilities of husbands and wives in marriage. There are no other texts. Jesus quotes Genesis. Jesus talks about uh, a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife. The two should become one flesh. Um, So you, you have that. You have talk about adultery and divorce and that kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You have the Genesis account. But those those set the boundaries of marriage. They're really more definitions of marriage. So we learn that uh, regardless of what we make legal, let me say it like this. Same-sex marriage will never exist. I don't care if every province and every state and every country on planet Earth makes it legal and it happens over and over and over again. It will never exist in God's eyes. And the reason for that is that's defined creationally. It may become socially acceptable, but it will never become a real entity in God's eyes. So the words of Jesus, the words in Genesis, they they serve to establish the boundaries of marriage. One husband, one wife, so uh, polygamy is out of the question. A husband and a wife. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So it's heterosexual. It always will be heterosexual. It's permanent. But none of those texts say, here's here's how you make marriage work. You understand what I'm saying? Here is, is, this is how wives should act in a marriage. Here, this is how husbands should behave in a marriage. Here, this is how it works. This is God's design for the roles and the responsibilities. This is the only passage, which, which, which is striking to me that Christian couples will say, not, not, not that passage, find some other one. And you know the go-tos, hey? So we'll read, we'll read 1 Corinthians 13 about love. We'll go to 1 John. We'll go to all sorts of passages, generally talking about love. None of them. 
talking about marriage because, quite frankly, we don't like what God says about marriage. It doesn't fit very well in today's culture. And so, when push came to shove, couples refrained from having Paul's words read because they resented. Nobody complains that it says, and this is the mystery to me, because if there's ever any group who should complain, it should be the husbands. Nobody ever complains that what it actually says about husbands is far more demanding. Any husband that's getting married, here's what Jesus says to you. You absolutely die to your own interests. And then he says, wives, you submit to your husbands. And that makes it sound like, well, somehow we're not equal, that somehow men are superior. And, and, and so the whole thing. What I want to argue tonight is this. I think the truth is that what I want to try and show you tonight is that we are cheating wives when these words aren't read at Christian weddings. Most of all, we are cheating wives. We are shortchanging them. And husbands. It's right that God's word be heard on marriage, not just love, when people get married in this church, because marriage will only be truly fulfilling and, yes, liberating when both partners enter it on God's terms and not their own. Most of the time tonight, I might be just a teeny, teeny bit longer tonight. Does that frighten you? Just a teeny bit. But you're going to get out of here way before 11 o'clock. You'll be on your way home. Most of the time will be spent on the husband's responsibility toward the wife. It's not because I'm embarrassed or ashamed that the Bible says a wife needs to submit to her husband, but because I don't think that kind of submission can be properly understood in this culture unless we first talk about the husband's role. What typically happens in most settings, what typically happens at most settings when we look at this text is, we know that these verses about marriage exist. Even if we don't want them read at the ceremony, we know they're in there. And so we'll give a nod to the passage. And the way that's typically done is we'll, go to, we'll, we'll start. If you look in your Bibles and you go to, say, um, 18, if you had to just back it up a little bit, and I hope you have your Bible with you, where Paul says, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And typically people say, there it is. See, it's not just the wife that has to submit to the husband. It's, it's, it's reciprocal submission. We submit to one another. And that's made to be the overarching principle in the marriage passage. And what I'm arguing tonight is it doesn't work. And here's why it doesn't work. 
if you make that the principle, the problem you have is Paul gives, Paul gives four illustrations of this mutual submission. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He gives four illustrations of it. In 522, he talks about marriage. In 523, he talks about Christ and his church. In 6, 1 and 2, he talks about children and parents. In 6, 5 and 6, he talks about slaves and masters. In other words, if you take 521 as the overarching principle and say the idea here is mutual submission back and forth with no one really submitting to the other, the problem you have is Paul gives four illustrations and not one of them is an illustration of mutual submission. In the marriage thing, he just says, wives submit to your husbands. He doesn't say husbands submit to wives. In Christ and the church, he talks about Christ being the head of the church. He doesn't say the church is the head of Christ. In the parent-child relationship, he talks about children obeying and honoring their parents. He doesn't talk about parents obeying their children. In slaves and masters, he talks about slaves serving and working for their masters. He doesn't say masters working for their slaves. So if Paul's idea was... You know what? Everybody just submits to everybody equally. He, he did a terrible job of illustrating it. You all see what I'm saying there? Not one of the illustrations. So what I'm saying is this. What Paul does in 521 is he says, people need to submit to each other. One to another. Here's, here, here's, here are patterns of what that kind of submission looks like. Here's how it works in a marriage. Here's how it works with Christ and his church. Here's how it works with parents and children. Here's how it works with slaves and masters. No, it's not an endorsement of slavery. It's simply saying that the slave will serve the master, not because he's worthy of it or it's legal or a good institution, but he says out of reverence for Christ. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Wives are to submit to their husbands in the Lord. Rini submits to me not because she loves me and I'm worthy of it. Rini submits to me because she loves Jesus. That's different entirely. Where I want to get to, and, and we'll get into this in a minute. I said at the beginning that I think it's, it cheats wives and it cheats husbands when this isn't read at a wedding. I think it should be read at every Christian wedding. And it cheats both husbands and wives for this reason. Maybe you're hearing you're newly married. Maybe you're hearing you've been married for 60 years. Let me tell you the greatest threat to your marriage. I know this, not because of some spirit of discernment, but just because it's the way it is. We all have exactly the same marriage problem, every one of us. Let me spell it for you. S E. The last letter is not X. L, F. The self-life that gets gets expressed when a partner feels they're not being satisfied and they have to move outside the bounds of marriage for an illicit relationship. The self that gets expressed in a desire for material things where people spend no time with each other because they have to have more and more and more stuff. It's the same problem expressed in different ways. It's called self. The self-life that gets expressed when there's an argument and each one feels it's the other one's fault and neither one ever wants to say, you know what, this is silly, I'm sorry. 
the enemy of every marriage in this room is exactly the same. It's you. I have this little cartoon in my office. There's a husband and wife sitting in the office, and in this cartoon, don't be offended, it just happens to be the woman who's saying to the counselor, how should I know what's wrong with our marriage? Ask stupid here. Here's what's wrong with every marriage. You. Now, the reason I think it's cheating us not to read this passage is when, when a wife is commanded to submit to her husband, and when a husband is commanded to literally die for his wife, do you see the enemy that's being attacked in both those commands? It's self. The self that says, no, I, I've, I have just as much right as you. I'm just as important as you are. You should have to lay down your life for me just as much as I have to lay down my life for you. And so God gives both husbands and wives something to grow against in the institution of marriage, that their marriage will be riddled with holes if they don't deal with the self-issue. All right. Let's start. None of what I have said will seem important until we understand the mystery Paul describes about marriage in 532. Look at the words in their context. I'll read 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying, strikingly, that it refers to Christ and his church. So, the words in verse 31 clearly describe God's creative will for permanent, heterosexual, monogamous unions in marriage. But there's something else that's frequently missed by many Christians. Verse 31 is a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. These are God's words spoken to Adam and Eve before they ever came together in union. Okay. Then in verse 32, Paul tells us that the marriage relationship was always designed. It was designed by God. Why can't we mess it up? Why can't we define it however we want? Why can't we work it differently? Because the relationship has a design to it. It was designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Now Christ wasn't physically present on the earthly scene at all when Adam and Eve were created. This mystery, this mystery of the meaning of marriage, it wasn't revealed at the time of creation. In fact, Paul describes something that was only fully revealed when Jesus Christ came to die on the cross. We're talking about the atonement. To die on the cross to redeem his bride, the church. So so think about this. Paul talks about the creation of the very first couple on planet Earth. And he talks about them and Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. He talks about those two things in the very same breath. Same sentence. Why? Why? Well, Paul tells us something that none of us would ever have known. None of us would have ever 
imagined just by looking at Adam and Eve in the garden. Marriage, says Paul, right from the very first couple, was intended to display, to picture Christ's relationship to the church. And and the reason Paul calls it a mystery in 32, this is a mystery, that's because the meaning of marriage wasn't fully perceived until the coming of Christ and his death on the cross. That's the mystery that Paul describes in Ephesians 5. The mystery is this. It wasn't seen at the time. But God created the institution of marriage so that there would be a living, visible model in husbands of Jesus dying on the cross for his church. And God created the institution of marriage so there'd be a living, visible model in wives of how Christ's bride would respond to the love of a husband in submission. Neither of those roles is optional if it's going to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Because you don't have a church that isn't submitted to Jesus, do you? Or at least, should you? And there's no redemption if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. We're not redeemed just because he came into this world. We're redeemed because he died for his bride. He ended his own independent life. So the definition of marriage isn't left to any group or culture political interest group to define it isn't something that evolves as times and standards change no Paul says marriage is as constant in its meaning marriage is as constant in its meaning and significance as is the mission and message of Christ and his death on the cross for the church if you want to change that Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. If you want to change that, then you can change marriage. So I hope in this first point we get this, we start to feel the weight of this a little bit. We desperately need to have a big, well-rounded, biblical framework for the meaning of what marriage is. You can't just be against same-sex marriage. That's not going to carry you anywhere. You need to know why. What's missing in that? We need to know why only God gets to make the rules for marriage. The reason God gets to make the rules for marriage is because God is the one who sends his son to redeem us. Point two. Jesus died on the cross to establish the pattern for a husband's love for his own wife. And we're going to look at this text for a little while. Husbands, 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I hope as we work through this series, we're starting to see all of the treasure that is in the cross of Christ. There's, there's 
vast meaning there. So Jesus died on the cross to provide forgiveness and grace to guilty sinners. Yes. What else? Jesus died on the cross to cleanse the conscience before Father God. Yes. What else? Jesus died on the cross to become our sympathetic high priest. Yes. What else? Jesus died on the cross to establish hope that through Christ's death, Father God will ultimately give us all things good and blessed. Yes. But what else? Here's something else. Jesus died on the cross. Hear me. Jesus died on the cross to model the self-crucifying love the husband must show to his wife. Jesus died on the cross to reveal the mystery, this part of the mystery of the meaning of marriage. Marriage is meant to make the meaning of Christ's love for his bride visible in this world. Now, work that through. The logic goes like this. If Father God, our creator, if he knew before he created one person... If he knew before God the Son ever left the splendor of heaven, if God knew that the death of Jesus Christ, the Son, was to model the love of husbands for their wives, think about it. If this was the plan from all eternity, here's what it means. It means that when Jesus was hanging on that cross, before he died, when he was suffering all that, Jesus knew he was demonstrating way husbands should love their wives. That's mind-boggling to me. So as he's hanging there, as he's hanging there, as his life slips away, as he suffers being despised and persecuted and mocked, and his life slips away on the cross, he's conscious. He knows this is for the sins of the world, A, and he knows This is for an example for husbands. Guys, do you think about that one bit? Picture, picture Jesus, bloody Jesus, hanging on the cross, thinking about husbands. I'd never processed that before. He's hanging there on the cross, thinking about husbands. He died for everyone. He died to bring us all forgiveness. But he's modeling something specific for husbands. When he laid down his own rights, he knew he was modeling the love of a husband for his wife. When he suffered wrong without retaliation, he knew he was modeling the kind of love a husband must show to his wife. When he offered love and forgiveness while we were still undeserving or unresponsive, he was modeling the love of a husband for his wife. When he faced the cross, making me his ultimate concern rather than himself, he knew he was modeling love of a husband for a wife. And so you hear, hear Paul making the mystery of marriage plain. Husbands, 
Here's what marriage is all about. Jesus died on the cross to fill marriage with its deepest and truest meaning. He revealed the pattern that was formed in God's heart from all eternity. The mystery fully revealed in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Love your wives, husband, the way Jesus loved the church. That's how you do it. And there shouldn't be a guy in the room that just says, wow, wow. Can I keep going for a little bit? All right. It's not 11 yet. Three. This is so important to me. I was going to do it this morning, and I thought, I just don't have time. I wish I'd done it to a, a bigger crowd. I'm not complaining to you. I just mean I wish I'd done the morning rather than the night. Sorry, that, that didn't come out the way I wanted it to. Three. The cross-styled love of the husband. This is, now we're getting into the details that are so important. The cross-styled love of the husband is the initiating factor. The initiating factor in both the submission of the wife and the power of the spirit entering the marriage relationship. Let me try and work this through. Again... Remember the meaning of marriage revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. We finally realize. Nobody knew this in the garden. We finally realize with the explanation of the New Testament that the cross of Jesus explains the meaning of marriage. With that in mind, think about this important question. Just how far would our own redemption be an accomplished reality without the willingness of Jesus Christ to lay down his life for his bride. How saved would you be tonight? And the answer is, not. Right? Powerless. Empty. No redemption. Lost. Doomed. Irreparably fallen. No life. So nothing, nothing of the flow of God's grace and power works in our lives without this self-emptying, dying love of Jesus. Now, this is important. In the very same way, nothing of the love, life, power of God gets released and established in the marriage relationship apart from a husband who lays down his life for his wife. Everything gets gummed up and dies. Please, do you see now why I said I think husbands and wives are cheating themselves by not having this read at Christian marriages? We're the poorer. Practically, this means... It is always the husband's role to initiate healing, repentance, restoration, and renewal in the marriage relationship, regardless of who seems to be at fault. That's because a husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. Not only does that mean the husband lays down his life for his wife, it means he does that before there is any willingness on her part to respond to that love. Because... When did Jesus die for you and for me? 
while we were godless sinners, enemies, pick, pick the description. Paul says Christ gave up his life for us while we were enemies, 510. And that means Jesus didn't limit his response on account of whose fault it was before he came and died. So blame isn't an issue. Sin will always make us treat each other badly. But if there's going to be healing and restoration, if husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, then they need to initiate the restoration process. Here's how it works practically. This may surprise you. I am not as perfect a husband as you probably all think. We've been married 40 years. I think after 40 years, you're way, you're, you're way past the stage of... You don't... I don't think. We don't do that. I mean, I can before God say that. We don't do that. We sometimes disagree... And sometimes even get miffed. And when you've walked with Jesus for a while, you know you're not supposed to be like that. And so you dial down the volume of what you might be thinking. You don't say rash things anymore. Um, And Rini will tell you that when I get upset about something, I just get really quiet. And so I, I um, the biblical word is I, I mope a little bit. And I'm not perfect at this yet, but I do think, and she's here, I do think more often than not, and it's not any unwillingness on her part, it's a recognition of what we're talking about tonight. I, I always believe that if there's a patch in a marriage where it's just... that it is always the husband's job to go first and say, this is silly. I'm sorry. I don't like it when we get like this. I think that is, I said, always the husband's responsibility because, and if you think that's easy, it isn't always easy. I take that from Paul's idea that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which means... Jesus always initiates in his love with me. Right? Jesus doesn't sit down and say, you know, Don, that was really your fault. So, so it gets very practical. It gets very specific. Stepping out, stepping out and saying, this, this is my responsibility here. This is my responsibility. And it's a matter of laying down pride and initiating, initiating. We are freed from making our partner suffer for his or her sins. And we are freed because we recognize that Jesus suffered for my spouse's sin. Paul relates all of that to husbands. And this is what enables the husband to initiate the healing process, just as Jesus did. 
Now we come back. I believe that if you're prayerful and thoughtful about it, husbands, Jesus will show you what it means to lay down your life for your bride. Point number four, when the husband is faithful to follow his initiating role in demonstrating the pattern of self-crucifying love in marriage. When that happens, I know of no wife who would find it hard to follow her responsibility to submit to her husband. In other words, a husband can't with his authority subjugate his wife. That's a different process altogether. The command is never to the husband to make the wife submit, men. The command to the husband is, you die for your wife. And you win her submission. How many in this room try to submit to Jesus? Let me see your hands. Everybody. Why do you do it? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he died for you. Do you see how the pattern works? That's exactly how it works. I don't find it hard to love the lordship of Jesus in my life. I don't resent his will. At least not unless it's in some terribly ungodly moment. Why? Well because he died for me. We love. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. He gave himself for me so that I trust and embrace his lordship over my life. This is, this is Paul said, now we're talking about marriage. It's the relationship between Christ and his church. Only here, under this final point, we're looking at the divine mystery of marriage from the role of a wife responding in Christ's love rather than the husband in initiating Christ's love. Submission isn't mandated by commandment. Submission is won by laying down the life in self-sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he died thinking about how husbands ought to love their wives. Husbands, look at the cross of Christ today because it contains more than just your forgiveness. It contains your job description. And wives, pray for your husbands. They have a bigger job than they usually imagine. And they will be helped by your prayer more than by your criticism. And when you see the love... The laying down of life, love, of Jesus in them. Embrace them for all they are worth. You have a treasure beyond telling in that kind of husband. And so, I think both husbands and wives lose terribly by the surfacey understanding of that passage that causes people to leave it out of their weddings. And here's my entreaty to you. If you're here and you're thinking about getting married or you're engaged or one day you're going to be married, don't, don't take that out of the ceremony. It's the best 
thing you will have read at your wedding. Everyone said, 